I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Morning. Good morning. How are we doing? Yeah, okay. Yep. Yeah, I've just um sitting in a rainy surroundings. I think you're probably the same. The heat wave has gone. Yeah, it's I'm already mourning the loss of the summer. <laughs> we were mourning about it about twenty four hours ago, but how the kids were too hot, we couldn't sleep at night and it was too stuffy and and already it's like, oh god, like taking the kids to school and everyone getting soaked and yeah. No. It feels it feels like we've entered that grey period, which is the same until sometime in April, you know, when every yeah. day is sort of grey and Yeah. You don't see the sun. No. So yeah. we could, we should Mind you, you're probably off to somewhere exotic, you know, to write a couple of lines about you know, I've just superstar sports person, aren't you? Come just on. been back from New York, so I went to do a little stint of the US Open, but not 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 all of it. So I did that, um, which is great, but that was unbelievably hot. That was sort of 36 to 38, I think it was, but with like humidity. But at least there you had air con you could escape into. So you just dip back into the hotel or into wherever it was. Back but... into your five-star hotel. <laughs> I think you've got Black, this idea that they First spent... class travel, yeah. <laughs> I, I wish, yeah. The papers don't have the big bucks. But that was good fun. But And then I'm going to Wentworth tomorrow because there's the um, PGA Championship golf. So a lot of the Ryder Cup people are talking. So I'm going to go to that tomorrow and chat to players. But I don't think... Oh, I'm going to the Ryder Cup at the end of the month. That's it. Um, in, yeah, Rome, cool. in Rome, that's quite cool. Do you like your golf? Yeah, I think you play. Um, I, I, well, I, I, I kind of learned to play golf, or I started getting lessons when I was about 30. So I, I bought a house next to a golf course, and then it's just when I was still cycling, and I was like, I had Wednesday afternoons off, and I remember just thinking, I quite fancy going and have a little swing of a club, and went to the driving range and just used to hit a bucket of balls on a Wednesday afternoon. It was a nice little ritual that I had. And then I thought I should probably get lessons, so I got a few lessons from the pro down there, and, and mm-hmm. just so I can... You know, didn't pick up too many bad habits initially, but it's one of the things that's dropped off. It's hard off with the radar. kids being young, isn't it? Yeah, you need a bit of time. Um, yeah, and I've got so many other sort of hobbies and things that that Sarah's very patient with. So <laughs> the, the, the kind of golf was the last, the last one on the list, and it kind of dropped off. So I've not played. I played golf probably once, once in the last five years, maybe. So, but the good thing is, you never get any worse. So you know, I was so bad. <laughs> to start with <laughs> by not playing for five years it's not like you could become worse you can only get to a certain point so I've, yeah. I've hit rock bottom so I know that <laughs> if I had to play golf I know exactly the level I'd be at but you've never done one of those sort of pro-ams or anything like that have you done those no often get... yeah I get asked quite a lot and it's one of the I do regret not working a bit hard at the golf or starting sooner yeah. because I think you would you would get to see some amazing places and play in some amazing courses and have a lot of fun but um yeah, I think when, you know, everybody's modest about the golf and said, oh, no, I'm terrible. I'm terrible. You know, I'm only a 85 handicap or whatever. You know, it's, um, oh, sorry, no, 85. That, that is bad. That shows you how much. <laughs> What's that? That's uh, I probably that's am. That's 13. Sorry, yeah. Probably am you know, an 85 like, handicap. Yeah, 85. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm only, I'm only a 25. Whatever. But, um, yeah, everybody says they're rubbish at golf, but I genuinely am. And and therefore, when people work out, they go, no, no, honestly, you'd be great. Come along. And you go, honestly, 
you know, I once hit a hundred and I was high fiving strangers in the street. So, um, and they're like, Oh yeah, well maybe next year. You know, <laughs> So, um, who have we got today then? Who's our, our guests that we're chatting to today, Matt? It's Kieran Hodgson, who's just done, I think, an incredibly successful, we didn't see it, but but show at Edinburgh Fringe, which seemed to have uh, rave reviews every everywhere I looked. And I think he's taking that now to London. I think he might be, might be appearing in London and, and, and beyond in September. Um, very, very funny, but also he's keen on his sport. So uh, his break... Which is handy. You know, it's good for our purposes. But I think, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I, he might say otherwise, but I think his original breakthrough was doing a, a Lance Armstrong stand-up show, which seems <laughs> quite quite a surreal idea, but was amazingly successful and suddenly got him in the you know in the spotlight. But I, but I think I, I guess I think he's a keen cyclist, isn't he? Did, did you? Is he, I, um, I, 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 I don't know if he if he is a keen cyclist or if he was just a big fan of of Lance and then <laughs> obviously had his dream yeah. shattered, um, which we'll find out more about. But. Um, yeah, I'm excited to chat to him and see what his sporting experiences are and what he's into. Yeah, yeah. I think sport has sort of been that springboard to his initial success, and obviously, he's great on stand-up and TV. You've you've watched him, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. two doors down. That's where most people I think would recognise yeah. him from. Plays a fantastic character in that, and um, yeah, it's, if you haven't seen that show, it's it's brilliant. It's a, it, I think it's it's a Scottish yeah. sitcom, um, but it's. You can even get it in England. You know, <laughs> is his character Gordon? No, Gordon. Yes, yeah, yes there we go. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. is that is brilliant. Um, which which I mean, that's had a few seasons already, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah so that was a yeah. great, great cast. Really funny, and uh, he's brilliant in it. So yeah, excited to, to meet him and to to hear what he's got to and say. I, I think he's he's doing this from his aunt's house, which he'll tell us about. But I guess that's who mm. he's staying with while he's um, performing in London. So I don't, I, I think, don't know. It's a worry that the quality wasn't be any good. So his aunt may make an appearance. No, he's worried the house doesn't get many good. <laughs> <laughs> well, no tree in hotel. This place is rubbish. No tree surgeons here today, but you might get my dog barking. That's about it. Morning. Hey, hi, Kieran. Hi, nice to see you all. Nice to see you. How are you yeah, keeping? Nice gallery. I'm keeping very well. Sorry, I've, I've got my background sort of hidden, um, somewhat creepily. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Have you got pictures that. of Matt all on the walls? Yeah. Really? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you it's, don't it's want not, him to get freaked out. Yeah, it's not. It's not my house. It's my aunt's house. So I guess there's some sort of degree of confidentiality I should maintain. But um, yeah, don't worry. No, I mean, no this isn't watching. being broadcast. Yeah, no one's listening. Yeah. You're, you're staying there because you're appearing at the moment in shows in London. Is that right? Or? Yes. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. She lives in uh, Chiswick, so okay. it's a, a handy commute to Soho. So yeah. Nice. Oh God, was she getting excited about that escaped? Terrorist guy, wasn't he meant to be in Chiswick at some point? Sorry, this is not how I imagine we'd start this conversation. No, but... <laughs> no, no, it's the most important, the most important uh, topic of the day. Um, yes, unfortunately, they're away uh, at the moment. I'm house-sitting, so the most exciting thing to happen in Chiswick in decades, sadly. They've missed, by. right. Okay. Yes. Um, also then, later reports said it was in Northolt. Yeah, no, I read that. <laughs> very, <laughs> very generous to Northolt saying it's Chiswick, I have to say. <laughs> So how was your your Edinburgh experience this year? I heard it went really well. It was fab, yeah. Um, I hadn't done a sort of full run for five years. Um, and so there was the, very much a feeling of, oh dear, here comes old man Hodgson. He's, uh, <laughs> he's past it. He hasn't got any new ideas. And, you know, I, I sort of thought, is this going to be uh, a farewell run? <laughs> and then uh, it went okay, yeah. Um, decent reviews and and all of that and there's a feeling of i'm not dead yet uh is the <laughs> the main takeaway from it i think so is it is it quite I mean, obviously it's very different to 
acting on TV or other forms of performing. Yeah. But when you've been out for a while, how long has it since you've been on stage doing stand up, doing a show, um, a live show like that? So the last kind of full show I did was in um, 2018 to 19, and uh, it was all about Brexit. Which do you, do you remember that? that was important. <laughs> it's important once upon a time. Uh, so, so caught the zeitgeist uh, before the zeitgeist uh, was exercised, and then um, I was going to do a new thing in 2020, 2021, but um, events put paid to that, um, and then yeah, other things kind of got in the way with TV work and um, what have you. Uh, but I, I just love being on stage. I love. Um, creating an hour-long show um, and and having the sort of unfiltered version of me. And so uh, I was desperate to get back, just needed needed a, a subject matter. And in 2020, I moved to uh, Glasgow. And so I had sort of three years worth of fish out of water stuff about moving to Scotland. So I thought that was ripe for the exploitation. So that's what the show's about. <laughs> and what, yeah, what's your, what has your impression been of, of moving up to Glasgow and, and living in Scotland and appearing on such a, an iconic Scottish sitcom as well. Yeah, it's a weird uh, experience uh, in terms of migration, I guess, if you could dress it up as that, because A, I'm sort of moving to a bit of my own country in a legal sense, and B, I'm moving to this new place, but I'm given a special status in the new place by being on a sitcom. Um, and so it's, uh, yeah, it's, I, I've had those two kind of advantages when it comes to integration and adaptation. Uh, but yeah, I love it up there. And it remains, you know, <laughs> undeniable that various quality of life indicators go through the roof. Uh, in terms of fresh air and lime scale in the kettles and everyone <laughs> waving you across the road because no one's in a hurry. Ah, on you go. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's delightful in comparison to the the sort of, um, yes, slow uh, asphyxiation of living in London. Any downsides? Anything that you've, uh, you're missing from, from, from London? I mean, I don't know about you. Moving house, moving home, moving environment is um tricky when you're in your mid-30s you know making new friends and getting stuck in with things takes a long time so yeah my i mean this is a long long and pretentious way of saying all my friends are still in london um <laughs> but no, I, I have made some new friends up in glasgow very good ones but yeah there is that feeling of uh, oh everything that i used to take for granted is 400 miles away and several hundred <laughs> pounds away if you're um yeah using the west coast main line <laughs> obviously with the title of this you're you is it wrong to say your career launched in or took off with 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 a sporting themed um show is that is that fair or have i read too much into that um, that's totally fair okay. uh yeah for for those who've never heard of me which maybe <laughs> if, might be a few um yeah i i sort of got going out of uni in the 20 in 2010 and then had a few years of doing this that and the other none of which quite added up to anything and then in 2015 i did a show called lance which was all about um well it, it was all about lance armstrong but it was also a sort of my coming of age as a teenager in the early noughties hero worshiping lance armstrong and being very heavily involved in um, cycling and mountain biking in Yorkshire, where I grew up, and then moving away from home, growing up a little bit, losing touch with school friends, and then having your childhood idol fall apart 
rather uh, spectacularly. And then the the happy ending of the story was going back to my village in Yorkshire in 2014 uh, and witnessing the Tour de France come right through it and having this wonderful moment of reunion with all those um, long lost friends and a sort of redemption of professional cycling, I guess um in in the in the process so yeah i i mean i piggybacked on the notoriety uh of the lance armstrong story rather shamelessly but <laughs> it, it worked and um yeah that that show in 2015 managed to sort of get a bit of culture uh, a bit of critical um momentum going and uh, all of a sudden people would come to my shows and i had something resembling a career uh, so yeah, thanks, Lance, for another great gift. <laughs> <to the world. laughs> yeah, he's done a few things wrong, but there's one thing he's done right. That's yes, nice I see. think that that will be that will be you know on his epitaph. I think it'll be like, well, all the things he stole, <laughs> but he he gave us a few things. <laughs> so you're you're mountain biking in Yorkshire. That's how you you first became interested in cycling. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it was something. It was really a gift from from my parents and chiefly my dad. Um, my dad's always been very, very sporty, rugby at school, then rowing at uni, then fell running until his knees gave out. And then, uh, he turned to cycling and, and, and became, uh, uh, you know, a very keen amateur cyclist. And so as children, we were brought up, uh, with the annual fixture of, of, uh, the Tour de France and in particular the Tour de France, uh, then channel four, now ITV four, Gary Imlach. Yeah. Uh, highlights package, which I think remains the gold standard of sporting coverage. Um, and I think Gary Imlach is, is, is the greatest sporting broadcaster, uh, that the country has. Um, and yeah, so it, it's still to this day, every July, um, at, you know, seven o'clock or later on catch up, uh, <laughs> that sort of France. That Tour de France commentary and coverage is, um, yeah, it's just a sort of fundamental part of the the rhythms of the year for me. And then you discover as a kid that um, road cycling is not quite as cool as mountain biking <laughs> and none of your mates want to go on a, <laughs> uh, on a very sort of hilly road ride with you. And so... Um, everyone got mountain bikes when they were teenagers and we had this weird i suppose it it doesn't quite make sense that we all sort of watched the tour de france and love lance armstrong and then kind of transmuted that into mountain biking which wasn't what he was doing but there was the same sense of sort of macho go getting uh eat the competition <laughs> culture that uh we found inspirational and awesome and you know it was such a great story of what he'd you know fought and come back from and then you know he did that great cameo in the film dodgeball yeah i remember this mm. we, we knew that he was funny as well so yeah uh and then and then latterly everyone's now got into road biking because mountain bike is too dangerous for them <laughs> like, ah, yeah. the trouble is i think mountain bikes now have evolved so far like when i so i did bmx as a kid then i did mountain biking in my teen years again because well, BMX was a bit passe at that point. Mm -hmm. It's kind of come full circle. BMX is kind of cool again, but but there was a period when it was very eighties, and we were in the nineties, and it was like, that's you know that's for kids. BMX, sorry, mountain biking had just started in the early nineties. I thought this looks fun, and it was a full, George, you know, a George Bush was into it. Do you remember this? God, George W. Know. Bush. George W. Bush loved mountain biking. Really? Yeah. 
That's taking uh, the coolness factor down a couple of pegs, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> Gee whiz. But the bikes, you know, I, I, in those days, you're riding on a fully rigid mountain bike, and then they had the very first form of suspension was, I don't know if you remember Flex, you're, you're way too young, but Flex stems, which is basically the stem on the bars had a little pivot and a little rubber bush so oh, that the bars okay, yeah. would, would sort of move about a centimetre up and down, and that would take the vibrations at the handlebars, and that was like, wow, this is like riding on a, on a you know, air cushion, this is amazing. And then the suspension forks came, and then the full suspension bikes came. But nowadays, as a very long-winded story, these full suspension mountain bikes, you can go so much faster on the downhills that, therefore, when it goes wrong, you're going so much, you know, you have a much greater impact, and people are breaking collarbones left, right, and centre. They are, you know, getting head injuries on the, the, the fast downhill runs because the bikes are just incredible what they can do. So, yeah, I guess mountain biking, it is it can be dangerous, but I suppose it's... The, the, the flip side is it's a lot of fun too, isn't it? Just getting yeah. out there, fresh air, no traffic around, beautiful scenery, bit of excitement, get your wheels off the ground, all that. It's it's great. Yeah, it was. Um, I, I I'm just a, a huge scaredy cat in life, and uh, would far rather be going uphill than down. So it, yeah, it was quite hard to to get me to really love mountain biking. But you know, occasionally I'd be dragged out on some friend's trip to you know like a forest park for their birthday or something, and there'd be you know the, some clearing in the forest would have huge dips for you to you know jump and do all sorts of tricks and things. And the most I would ever manage was to let tiny. I think my wheels went off the ground. <laughs> and then we went when we were like. We were such losers, I suppose, but it was it was nice to be young. When we were 18 and we'd finished like sixth form and there's the thing of like, oh, you go and have your big holiday, don't you? Like go to Magaluf and, and sort of um, get off your face all week. Well, we went to Morzine in the Alps uh, for a fortnight to do biking. Um, and everyone took their mountain bikes and did that thing of you put the mountain bike on the ski lift. Okay, it yeah. takes you up. And then you just come down. So you just spend all day coming down. No, no effort required, which for friends of mine with full sus bikes was a real change from rides in Yorkshire when it's just, it was just punishment hour after hour dragging <laughs> their heavy, heavy tank like bikes around. But I took my road bike. So I just went off on my own and did all the sort of alpine passes. Um, and oh, wow. became very bored of my own company. <laughs> um, but you know that was the the price I was having to pay as a, as a road cyclist, yeah. And no hangovers and no headaches at the end of that two week. Then you've you've you know you've, we are, we are there. Thank you for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, the thing was, no, we did we did all the drinking, but it was that thing of being being eighteen. It just kind of washed over you. We had no money, so dinners were huge boxes of fish fingers and beans <laughs> bought for like you know two euros for eighty, and then. The drink was this kind of plastic imitation barrel effect rosé, um, five litres for four euros, um, which was so disgusting that we had to drink it with sort of like gallons of lemonade just to like make it drinkable. Um, but every, it was, I don't know, I don't know this is, a, you're probably too dedicated to actual um, athletic achievement at the time, Chris, but um, when you're 18, we, we just got absolutely smashed every night, but then you'd wake up at seven in the morning and be able to get out on the bike and do, you know, 70, 80 miles going over the cold as you plan. And you're just like, how, how can I it's not fair. get that back? Retrieve that. It's not fair, is it? <laughs> yeah. Have two glasses of red wine now and I've got a headache <laughs> for three days. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> 
Did yeah. he get to do some iconic little Tour de France climbs around that place? I guess because Morzine's very much that. Yeah, I did the the Avoriaz climb, mm-hmm. which is uh, up to the yeah ski resort there above Morzine, which is a, a occasion. I think that's a I think it's a cat one, and then I did a few. They, they went over a few of them this year actually. There's uh, one called the Col de la Ramaz, which is a first cat as well. But the big one was yeah the the Col de Plan, which is an art category climb. And uh, heavens, you notice the difference. Wow, I mean. They they nip up it in three quarters of an hour. For me, it was like an hour and 50, I think, just solid uphill. And um, yeah, no no escape. I mean, such is the geography of the of the area that there is no escape route. Like You have to go over this mountain pass or you will be staying in another village overnight. <laughs> um, and uh, it was wonderful to yeah pit myself against these things and uh, and and come out on top and I don't know it, the logistics involved in in getting to the out. Is there a dog in there with you? There was a dog, but there's not anymore. You can see my my, my glamorous <laughs> assistant has just removed the just removed the dog. But there we go. Um, yeah, I just long to get back and 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 do those sorts of things. I long to be in the kind of shape to be able to do those things. Yeah, currently I I have a bike that is somewhat dustier than it ought to be in my flat in glasgow and uh, occasionally i make it up the crow road which is um, what they came over during the, the world championships a few weeks ago and and that's sort of my limit at the moment which is um, rather embarrassing so i was up the crow road during the i had an afternoon off or a morning off during the, the world champs and went for a little spin up there on a beautiful day just i've been up there a few times over the years but it's been a while and oh, it's such a great road that and yeah Right, on the, you know, so close to the city centre like Glasgow, and you can get away and escape from it all. It's wonderful up there. It's great. It has the real drama and majesty of a proper climb, and it also has my UK standards, relatively civilised inclines. Mm. Um, it, you know, this is the thing I always find about UK roads is they're just so abrupt and irregular and sort of bad tempered in how they're arranged <laughs> compared to uh continental roads which just like yes we will just spend a few hours slithering around the mountain and make life easy and pleasant <laughs> for everyone uh, but the crow road sort of has that and then you get to the top and you think wow what a view what a wonderful climb what a great athlete i am and then you see on your strava what the elevation was you're like oh i've gained 200 meters <laughs> <laughs> yeah it feels like a decent climb but it's i don't know what you thought when you first went out to the alps and rode your first proper mountain mm. because I, I it wasn't even the alps the first time i rode a decent climb was i was about 18 and i went to mallorca and i rode i did sacalobra and to get to sacalobra you're going to go over a look and you've got these a few big climbs yeah, yeah. but it's as you say in the uk a climb that's 200 meters is a big climb Yes. Most for most places, so you can get used to this extreme pain, usually really steep, and it yeah. comes on suddenly, and you dig in and you hang in there, and you're at the top before you know it. But it's that that realization of well, we're we're in this now for the next hour. It could be an hour, it could be two hours potentially, just grinding away, and there's no let up. You can't. There's no kind of false flats or a little rest. You're just grinding along, and you're always checking to see what gear you're in. It's the lowest gear already. Yes, think, that's it. Oh, no. <laughs> I've got it. I must have something in reserve, yeah. I'm sure. Nope, nope, I've been in this. And then you check your brake to see if it's binding. It must be something dragging here. I can't be going this slow. <laughs> and and then you then once you get past all that, you sort of settle in, and you get your breathing, and you get your rhythm. 
and you've got your own pace, and then you can start to look around and appreciate the beauty of where you are. And I, I, I totally get that. Although I'm a sprinter or was a sprinter mm-hmm. and I weighed 94, 95 kilos when I was competing, so I wasn't a mountain goat by any stretch, but I, I kind of did understand the joy of climbing steadily at your own pace and that achievement when you get to the top and you look and you see, under my own steam, I've got from all the way down there up to here. And then the reward is that sort of disproportionate amount of time where you just zip back down the hill again. You go, oh, just just wasted all that effort and it's gone. Yes, but even then, you know, going downhill for like 20 minutes or half an hour, um, having drenched yourself in sweat, you don't realize like how cold and sort of weak and feeble you feel by the time you get to the bottom. You, you know, your body is just sort of going, what on earth are you doing today? Um, yeah, all of the the usual sort of time allowances just go completely out of whack. But I mean, I'm I'm not much of a sprinter or a mountain goat. I'm not much of anything. And yeah, I I, I I found it quite hard to communicate what you've just put so eloquently to my friends, the, the delight of going uphill for a very, very long time. Um, it's, it's not something that sounds remotely attractive to uh, most people, but it's what I always uh, craved. And um, I managed just this year to have one day on a road bike in Tuscany. I sort of took myself away from my friends and I, I'm not in any kind of shape or anything like that, but I managed to do like 80K and do some proper, you know, proper-ish climbs in, in a European sense, um, you know, just about four or five kilometers, that kind of thing, and a few hundred meters. But it just, I don't know, I, I, don't, I, I love the United Kingdom a great deal, but there's something about how we set about building roads uphill that just doesn't work for me and 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 the europeans really really got right and um there's uh, there's just a few things i've come across a very sort of sad and dorky here but there are a few nicer things in 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 my life i think than just going around a really lovely switchback just having that change of perspective that slight change of pace that slight change of incline um a, a tiny break and then oh off we go again and just having those every i don't know five minutes or so for a few hours just lifts you and lifts you and lifts you and then you access as you say at the top when you've come up 900 meters or a thousand meters you've genuinely accessed a new bit of the world a new bit of the atmosphere uh and that is yeah utterly exhilarating I did the Etape de Tour in 2006. So for anybody listening, oh, wow. if there's anybody listening, um, <laughs> it's essentially a... Floyd Landis, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, anybody can sign up to it. And it's like a sportive ride that you do a day or two before the tour comes through. And they always pick the most extreme stage or the biggest mountain stage so that the, the amateurs can have a shot and see what it's like. And, and the year I did it, it was... I got the invite about the week before and I was in the middle of a track training block off season. So the longest ride I'd done on the bike at that stage for a few months was probably about an hour. And, you know, my efforts were all five seconds, 10 seconds, yeah. maybe, maybe 30 <laughs> seconds on a Friday with you flying, rolling 500s. So I thought, oh yeah, I'll give it a go, you know, I'll just take it steady and had really no idea what I'd signed myself up for. And it was, yeah, I got to the bottom of Al Duez on the final climb and we'd been in the saddle for over six hours by that point and then still had up duets to do. And it was it was absolutely brutal. But talking about the switchbacks there, um, because the crowds were already setting up their, their tents and they're camping out ready for the tour to come through the you know the day after or two days after, 
it, it suddenly becomes like a sporting venue and it, it's mm. this amazing I, I'd, I'd seen it on tv many many times over the years and it is probably the iconic or one of two or three of you know the most iconic climbs in the tour and all the battles that have happened over the years all the, the special moments that have been defining you know that year's race and you're riding up it and, and every corner as you say you go around the switchback and, oh this is the bit where Pantani attacked or this is the mm. bit where this happened or that happened and and the crowd are cheering you on and all of a sudden you feel like you are on the pitch at Wembley or you're running out onto Murrayfield or you're you know you're you're Wem- center Wimbledon centre yeah. court yeah and it's it's such an iconic cycling venue and it's just a road but it's uh, you know as you say they do it so well that even the surface of the roads in Europe it just tends to be so much better in the UK it's just brutal you know people yeah. think it's headwinds or, or hills that are tough but it's the road surface that can really be the killer when you're grinding along and it's just relentless and, 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 and drive and, drivers who hate you <laughs> you can you can feel it though that's oh, the yeah. thing you're, you know yeah. you can't even see them you're, you're you're riding along you can feel the car coming up behind and you can just feel this dark cloud ascend over you think yes, yes. i'm really sorry if i'm getting in your way and i've slowed you down by two seconds ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a thing Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking Looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Who was, I know Armstrong became the idol, but who was winning the tour when you were first watching with dad was that a few years earlier or big meg yeah i thought it might be yeah oh yes i mean i suppose look looking back i don't know if there's much about indurain's style that i would particularly enjoy now he's very much a do well in the time trial and then don't muck it up kind of uh, but he, it was just his relentlessness in that like he'd never changed he'd never come out of his saddle from memory he was always yep. in the saddle just, never ever but just that same cadence the whole solid way meat and potatoes guy it was really um, impressive but at the same time not as thrilling as you know a pantani or whatever perhaps but. yes it's a style that a few i mean a few people sort of uh do i mean i remember cadell evans mm-hmm. bless him his his style of winning in 2011 was not particularly glamorous. I, yeah. I recall it was it was a follow the attacks and then do well in the time trial and you'll be all right. And it's not for me. But as a kid, you know, I loved the winner. I loved that Indurain always won. And then when Bjarne Reese won in. 1996 i was i was weirdly devastated I, I felt so sorry for for indorain but yeah you you love a pantani don't you you love a you love a I, I love a doomed climber but i have to say you know in in the modern era it's pogacar all the way for me uh versus the um the jumbo visma bulldozer because 
He's he's done this. I didn't like Pogacar because he see. Uh, uh, it's funny, isn't it? So emotional. I didn't like Pogacar when he was winning really easily, and I felt sorry for Primoz Roglic because I was like, oh come on, give him, give him <laughs> it, give him it, go on. Um, but then as soon as Pogacar started losing at the tour, I was like, I love him. I absolutely love the guy. Uh, I love his crazy daredevil. I'm just having fun. Uh, approach to the whole thing. And, Isn't it uh, funny how how we do that as fans that we we always want to cheer on the underdog. Although I think you're right as a as a child, certainly as a, when I was young, I always wanted to support the winner. It was like important that you were supporting someone that was going to win. But then as you as you kind of mature and as you grow up, it's you you want to see someone who you never want to feel as if the person has won without effort. You you always want to feel as if they've had to throw everything at this and we've seen the very best of them to win. But they like motorsport. You look at Hamilton. I was a massive Hamilton fan yeah, all the way up to when he started winning with apparent ease. And then it was like, oh, come on, someone else come along and let's let's see a proper yeah. challenge here. And then, and so I was sort of supporting Verstappen to try and, you know, and then, <laughs> then, and then he beats him. And now it's almost like I'm back full circle thinking, come on, come on, Lewis, you, you can do this one more year. You know, you can, you can get the car right. You've got a chance here. But yeah, we always do support or often support the underdogs. And and it's always great when a champion, as you say, converts themselves into an underdog. I mean, I don't think, I mean, we, we all love Mark Cavendish when he was in his sort of heyday, but I don't think we, I think we loved him 10 times more when he came back after all that adversity um, and, and was, and was winning again. And I mean, not a dry eye in the house when he, um, when he had to go home this year. Absolutely. And I, I was convinced he was going to win one more stage as well. I, was, I would have put money on it if I was into that sort of thing. If it but hadn't it's... been for those gears oh, the day yeah, before. I know. I know. It's, it's a funny old game and I, you never know. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't discount the fact that he might come back next year. He's, he's proved us mm -hmm. wrong before. But, um, yeah. but yeah, it's funny. It's when, when our, our heroes, who we like to we see them as they're almost like robots or they're, they're, they're a different breed and they're, they're almost superhuman and then when they're when we see them as human we almost then empathize with them more but then when they turn it around and become superhuman again i think that's when the respect or the the amazement that's when it's like that's when it's at its best i think as you say you have that empathy and, and you don't think they're just cruising along and doing this on autopilot they do have they do care about it they do show emotions when it doesn't work out they have had to mm. bounce back from disappointment Kieran, I wanted to, if I can, talk about Lance Armstrong because uh, in my day job, I'm a sports journalist for the Evening Standard, so I've, I've done it for a while. But I, when I first covered the Tour de France, went out to do it, it was Lance Armstrong winning, winning, and I always found him amazingly fascinating. But he's genuinely one of the best interviews I've ever done. I did it a year after <gasps> his you met Oprah, him. Oprah Winfrey. No, it was interesting. A year after his Oprah Winfrey mayor culpa thing, yeah, I did a piece on the people affected by him. So I interviewed like. Uh, Betsy Andreu and um, uh, Greg LeMond and people like that. So I did that kind of piece and he got wind of it. And I'd asked to do an interview with him before and he would, he said no. And then out of nowhere, my mobile phone rings and I'm like, hello. He's like, hello, it's Lance Armstrong. Uh, I hear you've been wanting to, wanting to get me. It's now or never. And so I interviewed him then and amazingly it lasted an hour. I was quite reasonably well prepared because I'd done the subject matter and he was unbelievably good. How fascinating. It was one of the most interesting interviews ever. And I'm really fascinated by the guy and his sort of trying to rebuild himself afterwards and, you know, all of all of that aspect. Uh, it's an amazing story, isn't he? He is. And what some people find most, I think, 
uh, infuriating about him and others find sort of fascinating com and compelling is his unwillingness to disappear and his insistence that in a way his complete humiliation and disgrace is just another chapter in the story of the man who can overcome anything if that makes sense he maintains and you hear a lot of people saying oh, he's not wrong i think that the whole era was bent from top to bottom the whole thing was was rotten nevertheless within that sphere my team was the best organized and we had the best tactics and i was the best athlete so unless you say the tour de france didn't happen at all you have to say that that i still won and he has those jerseys and he says you know the asterisks and the lines through and everything on the wikipedia page eventually will will disappear i, th I think that's that's sort of his attitude and you sort of part of he's like well obviously that will never happen and you are disgraced please go away and part of he's like oh yeah i suppose you know <laughs> um i listened to the move his podcast that he does on on the tour and I know this. I mean, maybe he'll he'll come back and and see this and get me. I don't know. But you're you're watching it, and and he's he's there with George Hincapi, and he's there with um, uh, what's the name? The the manager, Johan Brunel. Brunel, Brunel, and they're all chatting away as much as we might about tactics and about um the runners and riders and all this sort of thing. And part of you is getting suckered in by like, yeah, it's interesting thought about um you know, Pogacar's uh, attack on the Galibier, that kind of thing. And the part of you is like, wait, what? You're all the baddies. You're not allowed. <laughs> <laughs> You're the villains. We, we, we got rid of you. Um, and yeah, their, their unwillingness to, to sort of see that and their, their, their unwillingness not to be part of the story um, is, is, is interesting because I think there is always a temptation, especially in cycling, given what's happened, to sort of keep wiping the slate clean. Be like, no, no, it's all all good now, all good now, all that's gone, all that's gone away. And um, maybe it's it's good to have the yeah the ghosts in the room to remind you of what was and what could be again. I don't know. My my kind of sympathies with. I mean, I, I know that he would. I've never met Lance, but I know that he has maintained that every you know basically it was a level playing field because everybody was at it. And they were all cheating, but I I don't believe that. I don't believe that every single rider in that peloton, um, for that period of time, you could see them. They were at the back. Yeah, yeah. well, it, but but even <laughs> then, yeah, but even then, somebody, even if they were 150th place or 160th place, somebody in that list wasn't cheating. Yeah, and in my eyes, that you know they are the winner that year because they are the ones the the first person to cross the line that didn't didn't break the rules is that person there. So. My sympathies are with them and also with all the people that, yeah, his, for, I think you're right. It's become almost like a, a, a kind of Hollywood style The you know, he's a, he's the, the villain in the story and people love the villains too. They love the drama and the excitement that a villain brings. They don't necessarily always want to have just everything to be great and fantastic. They'd like to have that, the balance, the yin and yang um, to the story. But um, yeah, it's hard because I, I guess, and I also never really had Lance as a hero because yeah. I'd, I'd never, I'd kind of, I hadn't really forgiven the Tour de France when I was, I, was, I loved it when I was in my younger years and when Le Mans was winning and even in Geraint's era. And then it all, with the Festina period in this mid to late 90s, 
And then I thought, do you, you think do I really want to get suckered in and get drawn in again and become a big fan and have my illusions shattered? Um, and I think that's how a lot of sport fans feel about all sport um, or any sport that has potential for doping. They, they feel, well, how how drawn in do I want to get? How emotionally invested do I want to get into these these individuals and teams? And then there's, because there's a risk, they're going to be made to look stupid and think, oh, yeah. I was fooled again, you know? I mean, that's, I, I always, maybe I'm naive, I always believed that Lance was 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 clean i think because something in me knew that the um the, the the sort of emotional cost of it not being real was too great and therefore it had to be real like no one would no one would try and get away with a story like that the man who beats cancer and comes back and wins the tour de france like it has to be real otherwise you know like we're not in the real world and i think i always go back whenever there's a new wunderkind in cycling i always believe I think. Um, and yeah, I am aware, I think basically my dad's generation or, you know, slightly older heads, they look at, uh, and, and I, I thought he dealt with all of the, the accusations very, very well. Uh, but, but they look at Vingegaard's time trial, uh, in the Alps and they shake their heads. Mm. And, and I, 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 I choose to believe. Um, but I, I think, cycling in particular will will always have that cloud and and this is something Vingegaard said i remember in an interview afterwards he said it's important that people are skeptical it's important that people don't believe on first sight because that's how we hopefully prevent against this sort of thing becoming endemic again can, can i ask uh, you might not know but do you think lance ever got uh, was aware that you there was a, a stand-up show in the uk with his name to it i wonder if somehow came across his radar or you've never never had word back of that i guess never never heard be quite surreal if he did um yeah i i had an interview with um a, a cycling journalist who i think is no longer with us called richard moore um who said that he'd interviewed lance and 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 said oh what if you heard about it? and i said oh i'd be terrified i'm sure he'd you know come down my come around my house and bang down my door and say <laughs> what are you doing and he said no he's got a sense of humor you know he he might you know if he ever came and saw it he might like it you know so yeah, I live in fear of that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't know if he ever if he ever heard. I'm, I mean, I am I'm pond life to someone like that. I'm sure in terms of you know the the circles. This is a man who dated Cheryl Crow. You know, he's not interested in in the likes of me. So aside aside from cycling, was yes. There, I'm was sorry there, that I'm, we've we've just become no, a, no, a cycling podcast. And I, I apologize to your regular I'm, listeners. I'm quite. I'm, I've never chatted about cycling this length of time. Yeah. Matt, it's brilliant. I've. Uh, Normally it's cricket, which I'm not into. So uh, yeah, Matt's, Matt's the one <laughs> well, that knows about it. <laughs> no, I'm good with cycling too. I love it. Yeah, yeah you do. But any other sports when you so when you were growing up, apart from cycling or other sports you've as a fan you've followed or anything other than cycling? Well, uh, the, the research brief that you gave me was um, to to think of my sporting misadventures, and uh, the main one I can think of is um, well, there's there's sort of there's there's two eras of sporting misadventure in my life. One is school, where I was put in bottom set PE, and whenever I say this to people, they're like, "Oh, but they don't they don't put PE in sets. They did in my school." <laughs> 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 and there was all there was all the sporty boys who were with Mr. Curry, and they did GCSE PE, 
And then there was all of us with with inhalers and glasses and um, <laughs> poor hand-eye coordination with a wonderful teacher called Mr. Batty. And um, Mr. Batty learned very quickly that we could not be taught any new skills. You know, there was we did a session like trying to do Cruyff turns in football. And then after that, it was like, you're not learning anything. So what he did was very kindly, I thought, every lesson of PE was just mini tournament. So it was like, right, hockey, mini tournament, right, five-a-side football, mini tournament. <laughs> and it just, uh, you know, or like touch rugby, mini tournament. And it just meant that um, there was no pressure on us. We could just play for an hour and um, forget all our, you know, for sort of ge geeky boys like me, forget all our academic cares and just just do it for the hell of it, just do it for the love of it. Um, which, uh, yeah, was was a sort of a relief after because they didn't set it in years seven and eight, and that was when you know we, we were they were trying to make us into great sports people, and it just wasn't happening for me. Not with anything. Yeah, the hand-eye coordination was terrible with with tennis. I loved football and I was desperate to be in the year seven football team. And they had training sessions every Wednesday and Thursday lunchtime. And I went along for the first few months that I was at secondary school every week with my kit, trying out, trying out, trying out. And then I never got selected for a single match. And I sort of, I realized what, what, what the uh, PE authorities were telling me. And um, yeah, I had to sort of resign and uh yeah sort of give up on being sporty at all and just go into the weird sub subculture of road cycling on my own as my sporting outlet but yeah team sports were just not going to happen um and then i got to uni and i decided to reinvent so i joined the rowing uh club uh at uni i was i was at oxford and um they have rowing there you may have heard and <laughs> they they had so each the whole thing's broken up into colleges and then each college has its boat club um you know endowed with lots of money from somewhere from various baronets and uh the the one i had so there was the first date and then there was the second date. Now, the first date is people who are trying to get into, you know, the, the university team. But the second date is basically anyone who wants to give it a go. And I thought, when in Rome, I'll give this a go. I've I've been on a sort of higher boat on Derwent Water in the Lake District. That that'll be decent training. <laughs> near enough. Yeah, near yeah. enough. How so hard can it be? Yeah, how hard can it be? So then we spent a year being tortured by this um very posh man who who I won't name, but who did appear in a show. Um who treated us as if we were in like the the olympics you know we did six training sessions a week circuits um you know ergs which is the the name for the the row machines and then of course all the six six a.m outings all this kind of thing um being you know barked like come on boys we're gonna absolutely kill them this time Sort of, um, <laughs> on the legs what the hell is that it was a split come on get it down um, all this sort of thing and you know as as you know if in the north you're just uh, trained to uh, obey that voice so uh, <laughs> it's got going so we we're meant to do these races in february so we've been training for you know like since october so we'd been training for months then it was too there was too much uh rain the river was too high so we didn't get to race so then the next races were going to be in june 
So we'd been training, 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 but we'd never actually race. And I don't know if you know how they do the races at Oxford. It's this thing called a bumps race. Have you heard of this? Okay. Is that is it like is it a time trial where they go off one by one or is like if a head river or? Oh, this oh, is right. fun. This is okay. I'm going to bring this subculture to the mainstream. So because there's so many colleges, it would take forever to race them, you know, one against the other because it's quite a narrow stretch of river there. So what they do is they line them up one after the other in a row of, I think, 12 with a boat and a half's length between them. You all line up and then a cannon goes off, a literal cannon in a field. <laughs> and then the aim is to catch and bump or sort of hit, overtake the boat in front of you. And then the next day you will start a position above. So there's a sort of league table of, of all the boats and all the different colleges going down, down, down. There's, there's, I think there's eight divisions, something like that. But what that creates is the most stressful racing environment you've ever had in your life. You're sitting there with a boat behind you trying to hit you and a boat sort of somewhere, you know, at the back of your head that you're trying to hit. And the cannon goes off and, uh, and it's sort of pandemonium for uh, a few minutes. And after months and months of being yelled at and doing the circuit training and all of this sort of thing, we were given, before we went out for our first race, he played Al Pacino's motivational speech from the film Any Given Sunday. Wow. Um, at full volume on the sort of CD player in the boathouse. Uh, it was like, <laughs> we will die as individuals or we will live as a team. And it was like, right, right, boys, we're going to go out there and kill them. <laughs> we're all like, oh, out we went, brilliant. out we went, the cannon goes off. We all panic because we're in a state of complete emotional overstimulation. I come off the slidey seat. So the slidey seat just, I don't know how it happened, but it just flew off the runners behind me. So I was just sort of moving up and down on my ass oh, right, like with and the, with the metal runners sort of like tearing my skin open um and then chris in seat number six uh catches a crab and uh we get we get bumped within i would say the first 90 seconds of the race oh and no there then follows in the uh in the boathouse dressing room a such a somber dressing down by the coach she's like guys giving us an absolute mountain to climb <laughs> How has this happened? How has this happened? You know, it was like it was like all of our parents had died. Oh no! Um, so, did the boats get damaged? Then is it a physical touch of a boat, like a stem to the bow, or is it just crossing the, the virtual line of where the, the boat in front is? Yes, the idea is that um, you, you can hit physically, but it's a little bit tricky, and it's sort of not really the done thing. What should happen is once there's once there's sort of overlap, the cox who has been over, overtaken is meant to sort of concede they put their arm up and say yeah fair's fair and then then you have to get out of the way pretty quickly because the boats behind you might still be competing and then you get a thing called an overbump. let's say you're chasing the boat in front of you but the boat in front of you catches the boat in front of them you then have to get the boat two or indeed three places in front um which is a, a big ask and you've only got about two kilometers in which to in which to do mm. all this and then if you are the very top of the league 
that's a position called head of the river. And uh, your job for that, because it's four days in a row that you do this, your job is simply not to be caught for four days. So you have to race the whole course four days in a row without being uh, caught by a boat behind. So by the third day, assuming it should have ordered in the way that the fastest boat's at the front and the slowest are at the back. So the final day, does it just stretch out? There's very few bumping, very few bumps going on. Yes, it should be. It, it, it should be, yes. Um, <laughs> unless there's a boat. That, I mean, because I think, yeah, there's maybe like 10 or 12 places in the league. So you could easily, there's a long way to fall if, you, if you've got a very bad bunch of rowers that year. Um, you could just keep going down and down and down. But I, I, I mean, I've watched like on the final day, the two boats at the top going because when you're crap like we were the bumps all happen within a few hundred meters of the start but up at the very kind of top level they go for the whole way and and it's quite it is quite exciting to see that that mm. micro gap you know the attempt to to sort of catch and bump all the way to the to the end of the the race but yeah it's it's a weird old system and and after that i i i left the Balliol second eight for for reasons of wanting to protect my sanity <laughs> I, I went back i was in the third eight uh, a couple of years later and the, there was no pressure there and it was lovely <laughs> you didn't get any motivational al pacino no we just got audio thanks clips for, thanks for turning up guys uh, <laughs> oh we've got six of you today that's good yeah let's let's have a go is that coach is that coach still there is he do you think or has he moved uh, on no, no he's he's moved on okay. uh, he was a student i hasten to add oh wow um yeah quite where he'd summoned all that all that sort of you know get up and go from i don't know but i, I wish him very well um <laughs> but uh yeah it, it taught me the merits of not taking things too seriously i remember at school i did rowing at school for a little bit and we rode in the canal we had to break the ice to go out <laughs> on the water in the winter and it was oh. I, I loved i loved how I loved how tough rowing was and it taught me a lot about discipline and about just training and, and consistency and everything else. But anyway, <laughs> there was one day, a, a sim it must be a similar, or a, all the coaches must have a similar kind of tuition, private tuition somewhere, right? Okay, guys, here's the coaches, right? This is how you've got to be. This is how you've got to treat the, treat the rowers because it sounds a very similar kind of guy that was looking after us. We were only like 15 at the time, 15 or 16 and we were all sick. We'd all picked up flu. We were all unwell, but we still had to go out in the water. One of the guys was sick over the side of the boat into the water. And I thought, well, finally, he's going to see that we are unwell here. And we, he's just yeah. going to go, all right. And all he said was, are you, are you all done? Right. Okay. <laughs> off we go. And off we went. And I was just like, this is absolute madness. It's you know? a real pain is just weakness leaving your body <laughs> kind of attitude, isn't it? It um, is. It is, and it's sort of it's very, sergeant it goes, major approach. Yeah. yeah, but it goes all the way through to the top level, the Olympic level. It's it seems to be an old school, traditional way of of coaching and teaching, but it's still there. So maybe we got it wrong. Maybe that's maybe they're right. Who knows? I think. Look, he 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 wanted to maintain the college's reputation, um, and also we were most of us novices. You know, we we'd all you know we we hadn't had you know rowing experience so we needed to be kind of whipped into shape and personally yeah from from just occasionally going on a nice bike ride in the peak district to you know doing like circuit training and intense gym training and stuff this was you know in many ways an education um so so look uh, there was there was there was method in it but it was madness so if that if that was your sporting misadventure what is your sporting high then my sporting high, <laughs> it's so minor because it like 
I do sport very much for the enjoyment, not for the not for the triumph. And the thing you, you asked me to write down sporting loads, and I think one of my loads is the fact that someone has to win and someone has to lose. I've never really got over um that. When I was a kid, my parents briefly got into um ice hockey and we would go to see Sheffield Steelers play uh at the at the arena and and my memory was just sort of always wanting the team that was losing to win you know whatever the scoreline was i just started cheering for that team because i just felt so sorry that they were behind <laughs> and I was sort of sitting in the the home end surrounded by steelers fans could did not get on board with this and my my dad just been like please keep quiet please <laughs> um but uh, yeah, so so I just I, I I very much lack a winning mentality. I I can't really win at things, and this particularly comes to the fore when I'm playing tennis. Um, I played tennis with my housemate Matt for three years, and he was quite good at tennis. But he would you know play with me every morning because there were free courts um, nearby in Finsbury Park, and we would go and play. I never took a set off him, and I would have break point after break point i would get him where i was at you know 40 love and i would always always throw it away i and i just i don't know quite how it happened or i would be at you know five to two and something in me just couldn't couldn't punch through couldn't get it over the line to win and i would always throw it away i never took a set off him there's a friend i played with for five years al and i would occasionally take a set off him but i never beat him and then once i played my cousin five sets we went to two hours and uh i lost the first two sets and i was like well here we go let's go home and have a cup and, you know have have dinner and a pint and that'll be fine and then something in me was like stick out stick it out and third set hodgson fourth set hodgson and oh look i've won in the fifth set and he took it very well <laughs> it remains like the best thing i've ever done in sport and i don't yeah i, I don't want him to listen to i mean i'm sure he's beaten lots of people so it's, <laughs> he'll, he'll allow me, he'll allow me this but it's it's literally i think it's like the only time i can ever really remember winning anything in sport. did you act like you'd won wimbledon as well or yes, did you I yeah, did. yeah I, I, I i fell to the floor <laughs> yes exactly that's exactly. Oh. <laughs> Throw your racket into the crowd. Yeah, took yeah. off the wristbands. And, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Did you do an um, acceptance speech where you broke it down and <laughs> congratulated your opponent and yeah, thank um, your family? No, it was just you know, yeah. Um, Sue Barker came on, and, <laughs> you know, and I just I made sure to yeah say how great it was to be here in uh, in in queue. Um, so no, that that was um, I think I think overcoming my cousin was great, but overcoming my own inability to to win anything was was the main achievement yeah because i get a, a few different precursors before coming on another one i was going to ask was about the um a sport you'd invent did you did you conjure up uh, a sport you would invent or have they all been made anything that you would uh, there's nothing left to create perhaps well look sorry I, I realized i was holding my microphone funny for a second there i hope that hasn't ruined the recording um yeah we'll just we'll start again don't worry i can try and say some slightly more coherent things about cycling <laughs> I can't claim to invent anything interesting, but what I would like is for there to be a, a more official place in the world for a couple of games that I think are very good. One of which is line tig. Do you ever play that? Don't you familiar think so. With, you familiar with the concept of tig or tag? Yeah. Is sometimes oh, tag. Yeah, yeah. I call it tig. <laughs> sorry, I call it tag. I'm, I'm, I'm outnumbered here. <laughs> I love that. Oh, tag. Yes, yeah, sorry. I mean, you, were, you were saying this word tig and it just... Too complex. No <laughs> um, 
Um, but we at our, at our um, primary school, um, it was this sort of, you know, multi-purpose concrete playground with all the lines drawn on it for, you know, hockey and basketball and what have you. And um, so when we got bored of just randomized TIG, we would play line TIG, where you could only move up and down on the lines. So um, it was, you know, there was an element not only of run away and scream, but also strategize like where you could go um, that was not going to be intercepted by uh, the, the TIGGers, uh, the people who were on. Um, and I, I feel that, you know, with a, a sort of series of drone shots in a stadium, that would look quite, um, quite thrilling uh, for the general public. So if Line TIG could get, you know, a sort of um, a UCI situation, mm. um, that would be really, really interesting. And then the other game, which is an invention of some friends of mine I can't take any credit for, is, okay, it requires a swimming pool, first of all, so that immediately... Uh, but then so does water polo. So, you know, there's, there's, there's room for these things. It's got a weird name. Uh, it's called, Ooh, it's a toughie because <laughs> when we first started playing it, I think someone said, it's, it's quite hard this. And someone said, yeah, Ooh, it's a toughie. And then that was just the name. <laughs> that, again. Was that was it. So it's called, Ooh, it's a toughie. You have two people at the deep end, either side of the pool, throwing between them a tennis ball. Everyone who's playing lines up on the deep end and has to leap into the air and catch the tennis ball. Okay. If you miss the tennis ball and land in the water, you have to swim to the shallow end. And there you have to touch the person who is on. Now, uh, our friend Natalie is always that person. So we refer to her as the lady. But what you have to do is you have to swim to the end, touch her, then get out of the pool, run to the end, and then resume your attempts to catch the ball as it's being thrown across the deep end. Once you've caught the ball, you join the guard of the person who is on, the ladies' guard in, in Natalie's case. And it's your job to prevent the people who are trying to touch her from touching her. So what this means is that the the, the so it's it's not a case of someone wins the game, it's the case of who's the last person uh to 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 catch the ball what it means is that let's say you start off with eight people on the end one person catches it all of a sudden she's got one guard two people catch it three people catch it all of a sudden there's quite a formidable ring of people that you have to get through to touch the person who's on and it becomes very very tiring very quickly because you have to <laughs> leap catch attempt to catch go into water swim a length wrestle uh, <laughs> like sort of wiggle your way underwater or through the water to touch the person climb out the pool run back to the other end attempt another catch and potentially have to do it all over again i it's see a potential like, problem here health and safety it's running, a nightmare running yeah. on the side of a pool yeah it's, you know, that's, a, that's a big no-no water goes everywhere very very quickly um it's a stupid game but weirdly um if you, if if you can visualize it and, and maybe draw up some rules for it it is tremendous tremendous fun um is it not a bit boring for the lady well not for natalie because she she brings a real drama to it she likes ah, to okay. sort of scream and sort of go uh, and, um, and say you shan't touch me that sort of thing. She, she makes it she makes it very theatrical ah, okay. um and then yeah but yeah but the, the wrestling gets very tough towards the end when it's maybe you versus eight people in the water are there injuries sustained or or is it not too vicious it's not too vicious um yes we do say please moderate your running from the shallow end to the deep 
Um, and no heavy yeah. petting. No heavy petting, <laughs> ducking, no. or or yeah. bombing. Uh, but yeah, it, it's a game where, and you can switch up who's doing what. The people throwing the ball—it's often quite fun. They often get quite tricksy. There's a lot of fake, like, oh, you know, and then everyone, and then you get like three people jumping in for a ball that wasn't even thrown. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, quite how it's a sport, I do not know, but uh, it, I love it. it. I'm a fan already. This, yeah. this is my yeah. platform to share yeah. it with the world. So next time you have a swimming pool to yourself and like 14 friends, give it a go. I'm in. Yeah, I'm me in. too. Sounds good. Great. Well, thanks very much for the time and good luck for the rest of the run of the shows. Um, I'm Thank sure that'll be a, a try. Thanks so, thanks so much, Kieran. Yeah, that was, uh, that was brilliant to chat. And yeah, your Al Pacino impression will, will live long. I can, I'm already seeing, I can already see the, uh, the Instagram clip. I was like, that's the one. That's the one. We got <laughs> to use that. Yeah. <laughs> got to take me back to that trauma. Thanks a lot. <laughs> um, yeah, great, great to chat. And uh, thank you so much you for too. your time. Yeah, it's been lovely. Thank you very much. Great. Um, Take care. Peace out. See Take you soon. care. Bye. See bye. you later.